So let's pray together. Father, we're glad that we get to call you Father. Thank you for making us your sons and your daughters. Thank you for giving us these beautiful children that just sang of your goodness, that sang so many truths about your word and who you are. And I, I pray that that would be true for them for their whole lives, God, that they would follow Jesus, that they would see you as the everlasting God. And Father, as we turn our eyes to the family, uh, I do pray that your spirit would really kind of ignite an excitement about the opportunity that we have, that you've given us, um, given us the family of God, you've given us families within that, that we could leverage that for your name and for your kingdom. So I pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, so the talk's focus today is about the covenant form family, and I want to tell you why. As was mentioned, uh, we are originally from Austin. We moved here six years ago. Um, what God did to move us here started long before that. And what he really began to create in my wife and I individually was to go to somewhere where the gospel was not the predominant message being preached in its culture. When we began to sort through that, we began to ask God exactly where. My wife had very quick response from God. As a freshman in college, she felt called in New York City. Um, her family is originally from that area, from White Plains even, so very familiar and kind of tie with your hearts on that. Uh, for me, I took a little bit of slower and uh, sadder route of Boston. Just felt like maybe God's calling me that dark Red Sox nation. Um, <laughs> alas, he blessed me with uh, a Yankee family. So... Um, but what God was trying to stir in us was that our marriage was not just for ourselves. That we did not, we're not being brought together for, to, to be made happy by one another, to be satisfied, to be made complete. But we were made to be together in order that the gospel would be visibly seen through how we interact and how we are married and then where we take his gospel together. When he gave us kids, we began to say, what would it look like for us to be a family that displays the fatherhood of God, the parenthood of God, in such a way that people would want to be parented by God. And beyond that, we began to say, what if we changed the dynamic of kids' ministry? What if we changed the dynamic of youth ministry and we began to expect that our kids, as we grow them up and be disciples, that as they enter into the fifth grade, as they enter into middle school, that they could be the ones that lead their peers to Christ. That they're not going to be trained as consumers, even from an early age, but they could be the ones who have the power of God, the Spirit of God in them, to go to their schools. That's been our heart and that's been our passion. And so the time that I want to give to today is just to tell you what God has taught us along the way. And one of the big... Oh. I had to do a wardrobe change, and so I'm getting used to this on my shirt. Um, one of the big things that God taught us is that a missional family only comes out of a healthy covenant formed family. A missional family only comes out of a healthy covenant formed family. Meaning that if our home is not healthy, if our marriage is not healthy, if our kids are not loved and we are not engaging with them, it will be impossible for us to see other parents and other kids come to, come to faith in Christ. It just won't happen. And so I really want to make sure that we start there. 
that we don't kind of have our eyes so outward that we neglect those within. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says that if you love your neighbor at the neglect of your home, you are worse than an unbeliever. And what he means by that is that you have been given faith in God, experiencing Him as a father, and so you know what you have that you could love the family with. And so he calls us to take care of our home. Now, before I really hop in, I want to kind of guard us against three um, lies from the enemy that he's going to want to attack you with as I talk today. Those three lies, the first one is guilt and shame. It's impossible to talk about marriage and parenting without feeling like a failure. (laughs) None of us are perfect. God is the perfect father. We've been singing that. He's a good, good father. He's a good, good father. He alone is perfect. He doesn't demand that you be the perfect parent or the perfect spouse. God is the perfect father. Jesus is the perfect spouse. That gives us freedom from perfection and that idolatry that we have to pursue excellence without the pressure of perfection. And that's the second lie, and that is pride and pressure. Our tendency in human nature is to compare. So we may hear something and go, yeah, I do that, but they don't. And pride begins to rise up, and God is, wants to guard us against that. But the other thing is pressure to have it all together now or tomorrow or that everything needs to be fixed on Monday. It's impossible. It's impossible. So let this be about a journey that God has you on and progress more than pressure. Lastly, just guard your heart against a formula. Guard your heart against a formula. Every marriage is different. Every spouse has their unique gifts and challenges. Every child is uniquely made by God, crafted for your good, that they could shape you, they could change you, and that you could shape and change them. There is no formula to guarantee your kids will grow up to love Jesus. There is no formula that will guarantee that your marriage stays together. And so what I'm offering you today is not really a formula pride or pressure of anything that I've accomplished or guilt or shame for what you have not or I have not. Really what we're on the journey of is the the messy mission of a covenant-formed family, believing that a covenant-formed family will lead us on the mission of God. With that, I want to kind of tell you a little bit of a story. Um, I've not always been a pastor. I was a civil engineer for five years, designing roads, doing urban planning, Uh, But even while I was not a pastor and as I've been a pastor, one consistent um, reality I felt God's called me to is that to to disciple men. And so I've always had a group of men that I've been investing in regularly. We would, whether it be early in the mornings or late in the evenings, we would always have that. About a year and a half ago, um, as my sons got older, they noticed this trend. And they asked me this question, when are you going to disciple us? Oof. What a painful question. And yet, what a beautiful invitation. And what God began to stir in me and really caused me to ask is, why haven't I been? Now, to be fair, we we view discipleship as just as you're going everywhere. So we had plenty of conversations about Jesus. Our kids sometimes disciple us and teach us by the brilliant things that they say. So it's not as if we haven't been discipling them along the way, but the formal process That formal, intentional, I want them to know God, to grow in Him, to grow in their character, to learn the spiritual disciplines. I'd lacked 
a process for that. And if I'm honest, here's why. I didn't know what I was doing. I could kind of craft discipleship for these adult men, yet I looked at my kids and I just kind of felt helpless. I had no model. I was not raised in a Christian family. I had no model of what it looks like to invest in your children spiritually. And what I began to think is that I had to have this kind of Genesis to Revelation plan of how they're going to get all the Bible and then, oh, theology. What theology do I need to teach them? How do I teach theology to a seven-year-old? And I just began to get overwhelmed. And I had no model for that. And it kind of impeded me from moving forward. And what God has taught me over the last year and a half is that I had believed lies, that I needed an earthly model to be able to do it effectively, and a lie that He would not lead me along the way. And so what I want to do is look at the scriptures with you in Ephesians chapter 5 and Ephesians chapter 6 about how God has already taught us. And so turn in your Bible to Ephesians 5. And we're going to look at Ephesians 5 and the beginning part of 6 together. And before I hop in, I want you to remember what we talked about in the, this morning. You cannot be able to, to really love your spouse well to love your kids well if you are not loving God well. That's why there's the order to that covenant. We must love God. So uh, that's is not neglecting that. It's coming out of that, what we do next. And that second order, like I said, with love your neighbor as yourself, our first neighbor is in our home, our family. So Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to start in verse 15. And I'm going to read through 6-4. So follow along with me. Paul says, Look carefully... Or therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church in himself, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Happy wife, happy life. Amen. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
All right, thank you for tracking along that long passage. Now, here's what I want to show you. In Ephesians 5, we have been given four sources of power that help us overcome the natural obstacles that we believe prevent us from investing in our marriage and our family. There are four power sources that help us overcome the obstacles. Now, in verse 15, it says, Therefore, or look carefully then how you walk. That word walk is important. The entire chapter of Ephesians 5 is using that language. If you go back up to Ephesians 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That word walk in the Greek has a really beautiful meaning for us. It's the word pateo. And it means kind of full circle or the idea that you are progressing along the way. So it doesn't mean that you've arrived or that, you, that Christ expects you to arrive once you say your wedding vows or once you go home from the hospital with that child. It's a progression progression that you would grow and that you would stay in the path that God has called you in. Now in that, the four power sources have to do with how we walk, how we progress. The first is there in verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. One power source is the love of Jesus Christ that he has given to you. You don't have to wonder how to love your spouse or how to love your children anymore. It doesn't have to be based on or in an antithesis to what you lacked in the marriages that you had before or in parenting you had before or any relationship. Whatever you have lacked, you have everything in the love of Jesus Christ given to you in the gospel. It gives you that power source. Now, what that empowers you to do, verse 1 says, is imitation. Imitation. The word literally means that you would mimic or that you would copy. And so one of the obstacles that we constantly have inside of a marriage or a family is that we say, no one showed me how. My parents weren't that great. They didn't love Jesus or they didn't love one another in a way that I want to copy. There's no template for me to follow. And God says, well, in the gospel, you now have that template to follow. And so you don't have to worry. See, one of the messages throughout the entire Old Testament is that there is a lack of model. In Genesis chapter 12... Abraham and Sarah are called out of their pagan family, their pagan culture, to establish a new family. How are they going to do that? It says, I will bless you. God says, I will bless you to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And he says, and all the generations after will be blessed through your family. So if you don't have a model, if you've been saved... If if the gospel of Jesus Christ has been born into your heart by the work of the Holy Spirit, you have everything you need to imitate God. So you have been blessed that now you get to be a blessing. So as Paul talks about discipleship in 1 Corinthians 11, follow me as I follow Christ. Now in your marriage, you get to say, follow me as I follow Christ. So the first power source is the love of Jesus Christ so that you would walk in love and imitation. The second is actually found in Ephesians 5, 8, and 9. And that's in identity, that you would walk in identity. 
So Ephesians 5, 8 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of life is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now identity is crucial because what happens in identity is that you say, I am, therefore I can. I am, therefore I can. What happens to us is that we forget our identity as children of light. We see the sin, we see the guilt, we feel convicted, and we forget what God has saved us from in the darkness. But the entire message of the New Testament, every single letter, says this is who you are in Christ now, therefore don't live like you were. See, in the, in the Christian church too much, we, so, we focus so much on I'm a sinful person. I'm a sinner. Now, is sin in you? Yes. We talked about this this morning. What needs to be cleansed out of us. But the message of the New Testament is you are a saint. You are a child of light. You are light in the Lord. You are in Christ now. That's your full identity. So therefore you can say, I am in Christ. So now you say, I can in Christ. Tracking with me? That is a power source for you that you need to return to because the enemy will constantly try to convince you with guilt and shame that that is not who you are. And so the greatest thing that you're going to have to obstacle in that sense is an obstacle of shame and guilt. The I am statements of I am unworthy of this spouse, I am unworthy to be this parent, I am unworthy or I am unable. No, those are lies. The enemy will feed that to you, your flesh will feed that to you and you have to defeat them back by preaching the truth of your identity. And that becomes a power source. That you can wake up each morning and preach the gospel to yourself that I am a child of light in Christ. Therefore, walk in the light. So that's the second power source, identity. The third is found in verse 15 that we read. And that's wisdom. The third power source that you've been given in your marriage and in your parenting is to walk in wisdom. Look carefully then, it says, how you walk, how you progress. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, the entire wisdom literature that is in the Old Testament, especially Proverbs, says there are two paths that you and I are currently on and are currently walking on, and it's our choice to choose which direction we'll go says you can choose the path of the fool and it will lead only to destruction. Now in our Christian minds, we think, well, I'm a Christian, therefore I am wise. Actually, that's not the case. See, the wisdom literature, especially Proverbs, was written to the people of God because it assumed that they lacked wisdom at their, as their starting place. That's the whole message of Proverbs is listen to my instructions as a father does to a son, as a mother does to her daughter. It says listen to my instruction. It assumes that we need instruction to be wise. That the power of God to save us in faith is true and powerful to heal and change us. But Christ is not only the power of God, He's the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians tells us. And so we need to grow up into that wisdom. I believe that the church's biggest neglect is the wisdom of God. Because we've assumed that it already was downloaded into us like an operating system that we just had to upgrade whenever we became a Christian. And that's not the case. Because you only gain wisdom by walking in wisdom. 
That's the beautiful part of this power source, is its renewable energy. That as you walk in it, you grow in it. As you walk in it, you grow in it. And you, it gets strengthened. And the benefits of wisdom, if you look at Proverbs 2, 3, and 4, it's full. The tree of life. Success. Healing to your bones. Refreshment to your body. It's a power source for you. And that obstacle that it gives to you is an obstacle to overcome the foolishness of the world. The world is crying out to you, believe in my wisdom. And it's constantly changing. Five decades ago, what was listed as psychological disorders are now acceptable behavior in our society. Fifty years changing. What will the next 50 years bring? Will we evolve with culture and the foolishness that goes with trends? Or will we stand in the eternal wisdom of God? That's what's laid out in front of us. One leads to death. One leads to life. And so that gives us overwhelming power in the obstacle. Now the last, op- the last power source is in verse 18. The fourth is that you would walk filled with the Spirit. It says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Throughout the entire New Testament, it says that you were saved by the Spirit of God, coming in, awakening you to the reality of the Gospel, and the Spirit of God was put inside of you. It's a new day and a new power source for you. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Francis Chan, who many of you may be familiar with, you've been around the church, talks about the Holy Spirit as the forgotten God. That we love the Father as children. Jesus Christ, we want to be Christ-centered, Christ-exalting. But Spirit-filled? That makes us nervous. Because the Spirit moves like the wind. We don't know exactly how it is. We can't control it. But it's here that has the greatest power source that we could ever long for and want. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Did you see that power? It's the power that raised Christ from the dead and now it is inside of you. Here's what that means. The resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead will raise your dead dreams of your marriage. It will raise your dead dreams of your children. It will raise from the dead what you have lacked in your parenting. It will raise from your dead what you've lacked in loving your spouse. That is the power of the Spirit in you. So do not believe that the past will be what marks you for the future. That's the obstacle you get to overcome by the Spirit. Because Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He rose from the dead by the power of the Spirit. So your marriage doesn't have to stay where it is. You don't have to settle. You don't have to settle for the stage of parenting you're in. You can go beyond that because of the Spirit of God.
So, what does these power source, what do these power sources do for us? These power sources empower us in the practicals that have been listed in Ephesians 5 for marriage and Ephesians 6. So let's look at some of the practicals. The first practical that he begins to, to move into is that of the practicals inside of marriage. So if you turn back to Ephesians chapter 5, the practicals lie in responsibility and arrangement. Inside of marriage, with your spouse, for you to be a healthy, covenant-formed marriage, it's responsibility and arrangement. Now, the responsibility all flows from, the, from an association with Christ. Whether it's for wives, whether for his husbands, it's an association with Christ. So you here read, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, the association that is typically like given there for wives is that of, of the church. But don't miss how a wife can associate with Christ. Because Christ submitted to the will of the Father. Christ knows what it is to submit outside of His own desires, outside of His own will, to God's will. And so in that, that's again your power source. Remember, that's the way that Christ loved you. And so now you are empowered to have this responsibility of submission. And that submission responsibility is that of an empowering helpmate. That's the message of the scripture. Is that in Genesis, in creation, the first marriage, as God formed its first covenant, He formed it saying, Adam, you can't do it. <laughs> you can do a lot of things, but you can't do it without a helper. And so He brought Eve. And, he, and Adam sang. He said, Amen, Hallelujah. <laughs> as we do on our wedding days. And then the honeymoon is over. <laughs> And the songs are no longer sung as loudly because we discover that our spouse struggles with the same sin and difficulty that we do. But it does not change the responsibility. And so while the spouse gets to associate Christ in submission and trusting of God the Father by submitting in ways that they may not always want to, the husband's call is that of love, of sacrificial, self-sacrificial love modeling the power of Christ in the gospel. Both of them are given some, some responsibilities, though, while the husband is primarily associated with that of sanctifying his wife, cleansing her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present the church to himself or present his wife without spot or blemish. Also, there's a responsibility of nourishing and cherishing. So verse 26 gives us to sanctify and cleanse with the word, Verse 29 says, nourish and cherish. Now, if both of the spouses associate with Christ, here's what I want to encourage you. Both have those responsibilities. Wife, your responsibility is to sanctify your husband. And you've been given a power source of the Word of God. To nourish, to cherish, to value. Husband, you've been given... The responsibility of sanctifying, of cleansing with the word, of nourishing and cherishing. 
Now, all of the responsibility that any, in any arrangement relationship that we have has a certain arrangement. So the responsibility flows most powerfully in a covenant-formed family if it operates in an appropriate arrangement. What do I mean by that? In verse 21, it says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then you have wives submit to your own husbands. Now, all of our translations break those. But the actual original language do not break them apart. They are associated together. And that has significance. Because the language of submission there, submitting one, one another out of reverence to Christ, is military language. In the Greek, it's falling in line in a military formation for the war and for the task and for the mission that is ahead. They understood that in the military, only when it's in the right arrangement will you succeed. A general is a general for a reason, and so the private doesn't lead the general. So there's an appropriate arrangement for it to function and be formed well. The arrangement that God has given to us is that Christ would lead us. That's why when we get that covenant out of order, like we talked about earlier, everything falls apart. Now inside of the marriage, it says, in this arrangement... While the responsibilities of the parties look very similar, they're equal in nature and in dignity. There is an expectation of how they will be arranged, who will lead, and who will empowering follow. Husbands, you have a great responsibility. Because you have the great and grave responsibility, the weighty responsibility of leading out in all of the responsibilities here. If your home lacks a sanctifying presence of God, either by the character of the life of Christ that you live, or by the word of God constantly being given, it's time to repent. If your wife does not feel cherished or loved, or your children do not feel loved or cherished and nourished, the responsibility comes to you. The same way in a military formation, if the war is lost, they go to the general. They say, what happened? God's going to come and say, what happened? And so this is an opportunity for us to turn and say, I have not been doing this, but I need to walk in the arrangement that Christ has called me to, or it will corrupt the marriage relationship. And wives, in the passivity of men, which we are prone to, guilty, it is natural to step in and fill the gap. But instead of empowering when you do that, you enable. You enable passivity instead of empowering power in leadership. And I just want to encourage you to lay aside the enabling, even though it's easy and maybe a habit, and begin to step into empowering submission in order to restore and rebuild the arrangement. So let me just give you a few practical kind of questions. Because here's, your, here's the reality. You're on a very messy mission of marriage. To realign the arrangement that gets so easily out of whack is to fall in line with the messy mission of marriage of a vision of oneness. It says that, you, that the goal of marriage is to become one in Christ. Two shall become one flesh. The vision there is kind of like a dance where everyone follows the right choreography. Right? 
And, and not like kind of the, like you're naturally two-stepping and you're stepping on people's toes, but it's a vision like you would see a Broadway musical. Well, if you've been to a Broadway musical, if you've been to Hamilton, I'm jealous, and so I'll have to repent of that jealousy. But if you've been to a musical, you see how they fall in line, and there's that choreography. But that choreography is the result of regular practice. And so here you, inside of your marriage, you have the messy mission of oneness that comes about only by practice, and practice means that you're going to fail. But two questions they will give, that will help you along that practice is to say this. Ask this question every morning. What is one way I will love my spouse for Christ? What is one way I will love my spouse for Christ? Now show, see what that, that end is? It's for their oneness with Christ. Not so that they will love you back. And it's a focus of how I will love them. The second is a question you ask your spouse. And you ask them, what is one way I can love you toward Christ? So you're asking yourself, trying to kind of stir in your habit of like, how can I have a posture to love them? What is one way I will love them for Christ? But then you can ask them, and that's a humble ask, to say, what is one way I can love you toward Christ? And what I want you to see at the very end of Ephesians 5, 32 and 33, is what you are practicing for. You are not practicing for the perfect marriage. You're not. Your marriage is always going to be messy. God doesn't need your marriage to be perfect to be on mission to let other people see it. He's okay with the mess. What you're practicing for is eternity. See, at the end it says, the great mystery of marriage is that it refers to Christ and His church and the ultimate marriage and wedding day that we'll have eventually. What you're practicing for is a game that will only be experienced in eternity. But the hope is that you get there and marriage is the means that God has given you if you are married. Now, Ephesians 5 bleeds into Ephesians chapter 6, but every study you will read shows that healthy parenting flows from a healthy marriage. So do not neglect marriage. In Ephesians 6, as we transition to talk about parenting in Christ in the covenant-formed family, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it, is, it will go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, that command is not conditional on it being a great parenting model. But let me just encourage you that the, the hope of Ephesians 6, 1-4 for you as parents is that you will have the honor of your children say, I will honor you. That you'll have the reward of parenting in such a way that they will say, I will obey. I will trust you, therefore I will obey. I will honor you because you are honorable. So how do we get there? Well, Ephesians 6 gives us the practicals, but once again they're empowered when we walk in the love of Christ, when we walk in our identity, we walk in wisdom, we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the power. And that prevents us from doing a warning he gives in, in verse 4. Now it says fathers, but the language there can extend to parents. It's also language used in Hebrews 11 that refers to Moses' parents. So it's not just fathers. Though again, there's an arrangement where they lead out on. It says don't provoke them to anger. Don't provoke them or exacerbate them to anger because anger doesn't create obedience. 
When have you ever been angry and then thought, oh, I'm going to obey? It just doesn't happen. Um, that provoking language is don't push their buttons. Now, this is where the unique nature of your children and you comes into play. When we had our first child, Eli, he's our oldest. He's like typical first child. I felt like a rock star dad, though. <laughs> I could just ask him to do something, and he would do it. I'm like, I got this parenting thing down. I can write a book at age two. Let's do this. And then the second one came along. <laughs> and Calvin is an amazing kid, but he is different than Eli. Just like you are different than your spouse or another person, and God fathers you differently because he's a good dad. What I had to learn is to evolve and recognize that I can push the buttons of my first son by being almost overly demanding because he is already obedient and I want that perfection so I can push his buttons by demanding more and more of him. Calvin, I have to change the way that I parent him. He's more of a carrot and a reward child. That if he sees the benefit, he's glad to obey. And so you have to kind of craft your, your, your parenting in that. But crafting your parenting is based on principles. The practices are based on the principles that he gives this. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is key. This is the method of God for the salvation of the world. Did you know that? This is the, this is the method of God to save the entire world. See, he has called this out from the very beginning when he established the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 6. It was the same language that he's given now. The discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And it's called the padeia of God. That's the Greek word, the padeia of God, meaning the forms of discipleship. Deuteronomy 6 mirrors Ephesians 6. And it's, and it's a language of instruction and then correction. Instruction and then correction. Because... Obedience requires clarity of what is asked of you. We fail at this all the time. In parenting, we tend towards the lazy, easy method of don't. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And so we're not giving them really instructions. We're just kind of giving them bumpers where they get to run into this and go, no, 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 go that way. No, 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 go that way. And we hope that it will somehow find its way into a lane. But that's not the way that God parents us. That's not the way that he parented the people of Israel. What he did in Deuteronomy is he gave them very clear instructions. This is the way you should go. It was instructions in righteousness. Instructions in righteousness. Now the only way that you will give them true instruction is you have word-informed parenting. Word-informed parenting. When my wife and I got pregnant the first time, we bought every book under the sun on parenting, right? Like all of us do. Or we find parenting blogs. Like, oh, I'm going to do that. You already have your parenting blog. You already have your parenting book. It's the Word of God. And how that informed our parenting is that we developed um, easily memorizable phrases that we could build on. They were based on what we wanted them to do and become. And so we develop phrases like, love one another, and we use scripture. Say, and so then we ask them, are you loving one another? Not, don't hit one another, <laughs> but are you loving one another? Causing them to think and to process. 
Obey the first time. Don't argue or complain. Speak with kind voices. What are, they, what are we calling them to? It's you're training them to the Lord, not against sin. You're training them to the Lord, not against sin. Now, if you have good instruction, then healthy correction just reinforces instruction. Healthy correction just reinforces instruction. So when your child kind of steps out of line, what you come to and what God does with his children is re-instructs them. Do you remember that you were called to love one another? Did you do that? No. Well, there's consequences for disobedience. See, that's the language of the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, he didn't want his kids walking on eggshells, wondering if they were going to step out of bounds. Ever experienced that as a kid? That you'd step over the line one too many times and then anger would rise up? Even worse, ever done that as a parent? <laughs> where, you've, where maybe your kids are walking on eggshells because you brought the stress of life in and they don't know which way to step because they might set off a nuclear bomb of angry parenting. You don't have to do that. The thing that, that my wife helps and reminds me when I veer into that is that God is not walking on, we're not walking on eggshells with God. We know what he wants and we know the consequences. Deuteronomy 28, after he gives them all the law, he says, if you obey, there are blessings. This is what you get. If you disobey, there are curses. This is what you get. The same must go in healthy parenting. The discipline and the instruction of the Lord is an instruction that says, this is the direction to go. Walk in it. And if you do, it will go well with you. You will live long. It will be a full life. You will get blessing and reward. But if not, there's going to be discipline. And you know your child. Every discipline doesn't have the same effect. One child, if you are into spanking, they respond to that. One child, they, they respond to time out. And it terrifies them. Because separation is their key kind of discipline. That's the same thing with us, is it not? Some of us need chastening that is suffering, that is painful. And that draws us back to God. Some of us need to feel the separation from God that sin causes us. And we go, I don't want this. And so we draw back to God. What, your child, what does your children need? What does your child need? Think through that as parents. Now, the last, what you want to see in this is that it ends by a discipline instruction of the Lord. Of the Lord. This is the hardest thing for me. Because there are so many times when my personal preferences prevail. My desire for comfort, my desire for things to be peaceful. I don't have time for you to be loud and want to play. <laughs> New rule for Saturday, everyone's quiet. <laughs> Is that of the Lord? No. That's crushing. And so evaluate constantly and consistently in your parenting. Is this of the Lord? And here's the last thing I just want to share with that. All God is asking you to do is to be faithful parents in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. He doesn't say, well done, good and successful. Look at your children living the perfect American dream or whatever your cultural dream is. He says, well done, good and faithful. 
Because you are not responsible for the future outcome of your children. But you are responsible for raising them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord with the hope of the promise of the Scripture that raise them in the way they should go in hope, in faith that they will not depart from it. The ultimate goal of the discipline and instruction of God in Deuteronomy was that they would see that they needed more than just laws and instruction and discipline, but they needed the gospel. The ultimate goal of your parenting is for your children to see that they need the gospel of Jesus Christ. That as you instruct them and tell them this is the way you should go and they see they can't do it, that they may see they don't have the power that you might turn them to the power. It's Christ loving us, laying down His life, the perfect sacrifice. It's the Word of God for wisdom. It's the Spirit of God. That that's what they need. So they, like you, may learn to walk in that. So as you respond today, again, let me remind you of what to avoid. Because you may take notes, you may have good conversations, small group, and then on Monday you may fail as a mom or a dad or as a spouse. And I don't think it's an accident that what follows this passage in Ephesians 6 is spiritual warfare. Because the enemy is waiting for you to step out of line to go, see, you can't do it. Are you really a child of the light? Is that really your identity? Do you really know the love of God? And so remember again the gospel cure for guilt and shame. That you've been, all your guilt has been paid for, that shame has been set free because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of the love of God in Jesus. Do not rise up in pride when you do well. Or do not have the pressure of, to be perfect, but recognize that excellence comes by iteration. Iteration of failure and repentance and return to faithfulness, believing that it will produce fruit. And reject any formula. It's not algebra where you find the right X and Y variable and it's up and to the right. <laughs> it's walking by the power of the Holy Spirit, letting wisdom inform you of what to do and the art of godly living, going, what do I do now? And here's what will happen. The messy mission of a covenant-formed family will produce a joy that is not based on success, but is based on Jesus. And what we've seen God do is we've seen God use our marriage, use our family to cause people to go, how do you do that? How do you parent like that? How do you have patience like that? And we get to say, I don't. But thanks be to Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Let me tell you about Him. And we've been able to see moms and dads at our kids' school come to faith and to see them walk in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's your hope. That's your desire. But it will not come without being a covenant-formed family. It's a messy process, but it is worth the mess. So let me pray, and then we'll move on to what God has for us next. Let's pray together. Father, there is a lot for us to consider with your scriptures. With Ephesians 5 and 6, there's so much in there. God, I pray that as all of the alarms and the lights go off in our mind of what about this and that, I pray that your spirit would hone in and just say what has been one obstacle. And in spirit that you would begin on the progress that we're on to just say, let me take that from you and let me give you the power you need to overcome in this one area. 
And God, I pray for these families, these marriages, even these future spouses. God, I pray that you would begin a work now that they would look up six months, nine months, a year, two, five, and they would say, look at the fruit of a messy faithfulness. The beauty of the vision of God's family. God, that's your work, so we need you to do that, and we pray that you would, in Christ's name, amen.